Do I need to remind you here that my actual waking life runs beneath these words like an underground river? That Les and I are partners in a secret, as all marriages are? Should I tell you that as I have been writing this, Les and I have found the weight of what we have carried too much to bear? And after one calamitous day, we found ourselves living apart. All the while I've been writing, my story has been uncurling. Like your own, my story is still being told, and I'm living the telling as I write it, breathing, trusting in the dark. I am writing backwards, but I am living forwards, blind to my own end. The day of the operation, I woke up in the recovery room with my teeth chattering. Someone was taking my pulse. I was aware of fussing around me. That first night, I lay as if pinned to the bed by pain, the throb between my legs radiating up and out until it seemed to reach the very tips of my fingers. I was in the half-dark, and my genitals were turning purple, a great dark bruising covering them like a blush. The professor was pleased with how the operation went. Everything's looking good, he said the next morning on his rounds. You're looking well anyway, he said, smiling as he went out the door. How to explain that my body kept producing milk throughout this and the traumas to follow? My continued milk production became symbolic to me, a supply line of hope to the future. On his visits to the hospital, Casper enjoyed sitting next to me on the bed, operating the remote control television set in the ceiling. I was feeling well back in my luxurious carpeted room, getting ready for my first post-operative poo. When the great moment came, I was ushered into the ensuite bathroom, conscious of the waiting audience. Half standing, half sitting, I waited for the searing pain I was sure would come. To my great surprise, I felt only mildly uncomfortable. When I emerged from the bathroom to give the good news to my audience, I felt as if I had successfully played Carnegie Hall. When it was clear there was no further faecal soiling, the professor seemed to think that this was a good indication that the fistula had finally been conquered. I was allowed home. The stitches were painful, and friends suggested rubber rings, salt baths, healing oils. Sitting down was excruciating, and the mere act of lowering myself into a chair and standing up again seemed insurmountable. But I was happy, and I felt as if I had been given back my life. My mother began to pack her things for her return flight, and we began to prepare to resume the shape of an ordinary family. The morning my mother was due to fly home, I went to the toilet. The skin between my legs suddenly felt peculiar, stretched tight, as if something beneath the skin was being pulled to breaking point. Oh, it's just your imagination, said my mother reassuringly. Why don't you give the doctor a ring if you're worried? The professor returned my call just after mum had left for the airport. I described the strange sensations I was experiencing. My fears that the stitches appeared to be pulling, or coming loose, or doing something distinctly odd. Why don't we wait and see what happens over the next few days, he said. It would be unusual for anything to go wrong at this stage. I made no response. Well, Susan, if you think there's a problem, then I'll be happy to examine you. Come and see me on Monday. And what happens if the repair is breaking down? What then? 
Oh, I wouldn't worry about that yet, he replied. I want to know, I insisted. We usually do a temporary colostomy to divert the faeces and allow the area to heal. A good proportion of fistulas spontaneously heal themselves once there's no faeces passing through. I wanted to lie down forever and never risk movement again. How do I tell you about lying awake in the bed the next night, having discovered my flesh coming apart like rotten fruit and knowing that it meant a colostomy? How do I transmit to you the fear in my cells, the feeling that my own body was splitting like two halves of a peach? How do you get the will to pack your bags to go back into hospital again when you have only just emerged victorious? This time, there was no excitement in me, no sense of adventure, only the slow, steady pump of fear as I got ready to go. The only thing that made me hang on was knowing that my mother would be back. Inside, I was three years old, waiting for my mother to magically make everything all right. On the afternoon of Wednesday, June 11, 1997, my mother walked into my hospital room and I collapsed, sobbing. As she rushed towards me, words strangled in my throat, and she shushed me and told me gently not to bother speaking. No, Mum, Mum, I need to say this. You must have mothered me very well for me to feel safe when you're here. I've been waiting for you, only for you. The word colostomy is derived from Greek, colon, which means large bowel, stumon, which means to provide an opening, and tome, which means a cutting operation. A colostomy is your large bowel brought to the surface of your skin, cut open. Before the wardsman came to take me to theatre, the hospital therapist responsible for new mastectomy patients and new colostomy patients came to see me. She wore bright red lipstick and purple and pink floating garments. Her high heels clicked across the lino. Her job was to reassure me, to demonstrate the efficacy of a modern colostomy bag, to stop me from jumping out the window. As you would expect, her manner was calm and sympathetic. After we had talked for a while, she gave a kind of colostomy show, displaying photographs of tiny babies with colostomy bags, demonstrating what a bag looked like and how it was attached to the body, assuring me it was both leak-proof and odourless. She insisted I would be just the same as everybody else after the colostomy, except that where I passed faeces from was a couple of inches higher up. So I would not get too much of a shock when I first looked at my stomach after the operation. She told me my exposed bowel was called a stoma and would protrude perhaps half an inch above my skin. She pulled down her bottom lip. It'll look a bit like the lining of your lower lip, shiny and dark pink. A colostomy pouch is about the size of a poppadom. At the top, a hole is cut around the stoma and a kind of superior band-aid keeps this area stuck to the belly while the actual bag hangs away from the body. There are no tubes, drainage lines or attachments. It usually only works once a day, and for the rest of the time the pouch hangs empty. The stoma lying beneath the pouch has no nerve endings, and consequently no sensation. 
The hospital therapist was telling me my life would go on as before, and with luck, I would only have the temporary colostomy for a matter of months. You'll still be able to ski, swim, do everything you did before. If you like, I'll see if I can get another young colostomate to come and talk to you. She wears miniskirts, and it's never bothered her. Groovy. I can't wait, I thought. A colostomy bag is fashion statement. When she thought I was ready, the therapist took a black marker pen from her colostomy show kit and asked me to get up on the bed. I'm going to position your stoma now, she said. Would you mind slipping your nightie off? She looked at me standing in my underpants for what seemed a long time. Do you wear jeans? she asked, and I nodded. I'm just looking for the best place to put it, she said. We don't want it too high on your waist. I was being fitted for my own bowel, a new form of body decoration. Finally, she drew a large black cross on my stomach, to the left of my belly button, and then heavily circled the cross. Looks like a no-smoking sign, doesn't it? she joked. I thought, ha, bloody ha. In the waiting room for the operating theatre, a kind nurse was trying to make us smile by asking if we were wearing any sexy underwear under our operating gowns. There were old women, young women, Caucasians, Chinese, lying naked under flimsy operating garments staring up at the ceiling. The fear in the room was manifest in the pained silences, in the throat clearings and last-minute requests to use the toilet. When I woke up, I did not want to look at my stomach. I stared up at nothing. I had tubes in my hands and back. I could not feel the lower half of my body because I had been given a spinal epidural for pain relief. I did not feel anything. I did not feel anything. A young anaesthetist came to top up the epidural. He lifted me up and I leaned forward and he injected fresh drugs into the tube taped to my lower spine. The drug rose up in me like a wave, drowning me so that my lungs seemed filled with water and I feared they would not inflate again. A paralysis was creeping up my body like fouled water. Keep breathing, the nurse said. I had to look because I had to wash the wound. I had to learn to clean myself, to become skilled at certain necessary manoeuvres before I left hospital. I had to look. All the while this was going on, I was writing in my red and black notebook. I was writing to save my life, to keep myself breathing, to reclaim some illusory sense of control. Have I mentioned that I kept on feeding Elliot? That all through the violence being inflicted upon my body, the degradation, the indignity, the disintegration of my previous known self, my breasts continued their heavenly pump? Have I mentioned that Elliot lay beside me on the bed, oblivious to shit and blood untouched by knives? My exposed bowel resembled a map of Australia made up of human organs. When the plastic clip holding it up was removed, it contracted to the shape of a 50-cent piece. The large bowel has no muscle in it, and therefore no muscle control. You cannot pass faeces at will. You cannot prevent the sound of wind escaping. One morning, a loud fart came from the stoma. The nurse in the room laughed and said, Oh dear, excuse you. Tears sprang up in my eyes. You can always blame it on the baby, love, she said, by way of comfort. 
She was still chuckling at her own wit as she left the room. Elliot attracted everyone. Nurses, cleaners, administrative assistants, women with intrusive cancers eating up their bodies and their lives, all drawn by the freight of hope babies carry. He lay back in his cot, playing blissfully with his toes or sucked mindlessly on a mirror next to me in bed. The stomal therapist with the colourful clothes wanted to talk to me about my husband before I left hospital. Was I going to show him my stoma? She felt that, overall, it was preferable that partners knew exactly what was involved, lest either party get a shock should one unexpectedly walk in on the other. Les and I had one brief conversation about the matter. Would you like to see it? I asked, not looking at him. Not really, he replied. We did not speak of it again. One night, as I was trying to read in bed, Marianne from the book group walked unannounced into the room. Immediately, my body clenched and went into a kind of red alert. My heart crashed in my chest. My hands began to sweat. I had not told anyone outside my immediate family about the colostomy, and I feared it would announce itself catastrophically, exploding in some dreadful noise. She was carrying an armful of beautiful scented flowers, and I tried to concentrate on what she was saying. Sensing my distress, she did not stay long, and only when she had gone and I realised that my first encounter with the outside world had passed without incident, did I reflect on her kindness. Liz had tried to warn her off visiting, but she had come anyway. I was glad, and for the first time I sensed a stepping stone back into life. <laughs>